It warms our heart to have the word sung to us and to affirm it together. Gathering together on the first day of the week, reminding us of what Christ has done and who we are because of him and strengthening us for the battle of life that is ours in this world. In the last verse of chapter 2 of 1 John, the apostle began stressing the significance of true believers being born of God. And in so doing, he's going to lay out for us the reality that Christianity is not merely a religious ceremonial tradition or even an ethical code, that it, it requires something deeper, a new birth what we call regeneration, what Christ called being born again, the life of God in the soul of man. So it's not just about getting religion, it's about God coming into my life, and when He saves me, beginning this amazing transformation, only the the powerful effect of God's life in us through the Holy Spirit given by God the Son, can create the kind of transformation that we need. For us to be rescued from our sin, we have to do more than just turn over a new leaf. I mean, how many hundreds of times do we have to do that before we realize that this is not something we can work out up on our own? We need a change of a disposition of heart, a transformation at the level of desire. As Pastor Campbell was talking this morning in Sunday school, it's more than just being part of the crowd that's attracted to Jesus, just being there. It's actually having the effect of His power at work in our lives. Now, the false teachers that John is opposing were trying to deceive John's readers and, and these false teachers lacked this fundamental, this foundational change of identity. They were big on what they claimed to know, but they tended to ignore the significance of one's core identity and how that is evidenced by life patterns. They redefined sin, or they accommodated it, or minimized it as unimportant compared to their so-called superior enlightenment and knowledge. Well, John intensely desires his readers not to be deceived by this fraudulent version of Christianity, and it's, it's still around today. I think, you know, depending on where you are in the country and what you're dealing with, there are different kinds of false doctrine we oppose. And at least in growing up in this community, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone was really clear to us. But we, we live in a culture that's quite religious, and it, it's easy to claim to be a Christian, and that the doctrine of justification means, God declaring me righteous, that it doesn't matter how I live. And it's actually just falling in the ditch on the other side. And we need clarity on that. We're going to see John state in verse 7 of our text this morning 
And, and he hammers away at how you tell the difference between a genuine, born-again believer and a fake Christian. And this is especially important when you're going to somebody to learn from them, when they're supposedly a teacher of the Word. So, in verses 4 through 10 of 1 John 3, follow with me as I read. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident that we are children of God, and who who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, it's easy to get lost in John's repetitive style here. So, to understand well what this passage is teaching, we want to make some preliminary observations. First, will you notice that right in the middle of our passage, John reveals what his purpose is for the warnings here. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Little children emphasizes our status as a born one of a parent versus the word for children that refers to just being under the authority of a parent. He's used both terms in 1 John, and here he's driving at this child being born of the parent. This is a section designed to give discernment to his readers so they can tell the difference between children of God and children of the devil, according to verse 10. So, you see words like everyone, no one, whoever. In other words, this is straight up and down. He's not making exceptions. The key issue has to do with how the two families, children of God, children of the devil, deal with sin. And so you see sin, the word sin or sins or sinning, ten times in these seven verses. What John is teaching here you know, you don't want to be confused, cannot mean that anyone who still sins at all is not a child of God. How do I know that? Because John has already taught us in chapter 1 that someone says, who says he has no sin or that he has not sinned is a liar. Rather, born-again Christians regularly confess their sins in order to be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's what John teaches in 1 John 1, 9. But I want you to think about the fact that if I'm coming to confess my sin to God, it means that there is an antipathy. I'm, I'm against my sin. In other words, I don't want it there, and I'm coming to the only person that can deal with it. it it's not that I'm okay with my sin 
Because, hey, Jesus is going to forgive it anyway. No, I know what Jesus has gone through to rescue me from sin, and I come to Jesus because I'm not okay with my sin. I want to get rid of it. I want to be clean because I belong to Jesus now. John uses the verb to sin in the present tense, indicating an ongoing action. You can, you can read this in some other translations. It's a little confusing. It sounds like somehow you've achieved sinless perfection here in this life. And, and that's not what this text is see, uh, saying. And that's why our translation uses words like practices sin or keeps on sinning, trying to get at that ongoing characteristic pattern rather than just an occasional fall to sin. At the beginning, John tells us something about the nature of sin that's important for us to understand. It will help us in how we think about the significance of it. The term itself, sin, is a common term referring to falling short, underscoring our sin as a failure to measure up, a failure to live to the glory of God. But sin... While it is failure and weakness, is more than just failure and weakness. John notes that to practice sinning is to practice lawlessness, that sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, sin is not just failure. It is also rebellion against God's moral law. God defines what's right and wrong. So when I practice doing wrong, I'm not just failing to do right. I'm also rejecting God's lawful rule over my life. And so this has a bearing on where my true allegiance lies. This has a bearing on where I find my family connection, where my loyalties are. I, I want to look at my sin as not, not a, just a small failure where everybody fails, but, but also looking at my sin, hey, this, this is actually bucking God's authority. And as a child of God, I, I can't live with that. That bothers me. Now, one more observation and that's that in our Western culture, we are used to the straight-line logic that we find in Paul's epistle. I was talking with a friend this week, and we were talking about this passage, and he said, yeah, this is really different from Paul's normal style. And then, yeah, it's different from Paul's normal style because it's John. <laughs> and we had a good laugh. And John's way of communicating here in this text is not the way we would do it in a Western culture. It's not a Greek logic. It's actually Semitic. It's developing the ideas in a Hebrew teaching style, that of repetition, and kind of a, a circular development, and which I, I'm Western enough that it was confusing to me. I'm like, okay, sinning, sin, not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my mind is spinning. And I'm projecting onto you that maybe yours was too. Well, this kind of approach, this Semitic, this Hebrew style of teaching, reflects the impact that repetition has on learning. Especially if you think about an oral culture, 
where you're learning things orally. The repetition is really important. And it's as if John is inscribing the truth on our minds, running a deep groove into our thinking, much the way Deuteronomy 6 describes teaching the words of God diligently to our children, engraving them on their hearts over and over again throughout the day. The fact is that even if we are Greek in our culture, Western in our culture, we still need repetition. We, we need to have a, a truth hit multiple times from multiple angles over and over again before it finally sinks in. What do they say in marketing? Until you've said it 10 times, uh, they haven't heard you say it. And, and similar to teaching. So with this backdrop, let's explore the themes that John is teaching here about the relationship between whose child we are and the practices that rise from that spiritual genetic identity. So, I've called the message family patterns, family patterns. First, we're going to look at the portrait of God that we find in these verses. Second, the portrait of the children of God. And then finally, the portrait of the children of the devil. We still use the saying, like father, like son, to acknowledge how similar children are to their parents in their characteristic behaviors. And so, consider the portrait John gives of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and of God the Father, portrait of God. So, what is God actually like? In contrast to what human beings may imagine Him to be, the world is full of idols, and so is the human heart. We, we just create idols. And how often have I heard someone say, well, I think God is this way, or I think God is that way. Who cares what you think God is like? What is He actually like? It's like somebody making up a story about you. Well, I think John is this way. I think Jim is this way. I think Sally is this way. Well, but who are they actually? So, what is God actually like? What are the hallmark features of His character that we would expect to see in His true children, like father, like son. In these verses, John refers to God's character and God's work as revealed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. So, first, His character. He describes it negatively in 1 John 3, 5. In Him there is no sin. Now, this set Jesus apart from every other human being who ever lived and marked Him as a unique Son of God. The good news of the gospel is completely dependent on this reality. If Jesus were not sinless, He could not have paid for our sin. He would have had to pay for His own. He would have been disqualified from taking our place. He's sinless. He's God. He's fully God, He's fully man, and as the God-man, sinless, He could take our place. Our hope of salvation is entirely dependent on Jesus being the spotless Lamb of God. And His sinlessness was at the level of His very identity. In Him there is no sin, not just that He did no sin, but there is no sin. His actions flowed from His character, just as our actions and words flow from what's actually in our heart. We do what we are. I I came to realize this over time, and I think especially in being involved in pastoral ministry, ultimately people do what they want to do. 
And what they want to do, their desires, comes from their heart. It comes from who they actually are. Jesus was without sin. In him there is no sin. That's on the negative side. On the positive side, 1 John 3, 7, he is righteous. And righteousness speaks of meeting the standard of God's definition of what is right. It's not man deciding by a vote what is right. It's not just conforming to a culture as to what is right. It's there is an objective reality of right that God has defined. And Jeremiah predicted that the coming Messiah, the Savior King, would be called the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. In other words, there's going to be a descendant of David. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So his character, no sin, righteousness. And then his work, which is consistent with his character, 1 John 3, 5, he appeared, he was manifested, he was revealed in order to take away sins, to lift them up and carry them away. Like John the Baptist, when he's first introducing Jesus, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was Passover season. In other words, Jesus did not come to gloss over our sin or to affirm it. He came to remove it from our lives. So anyone who continues to practice it or to affirm it or to minimize its significance as the Gnostics of John's day and the following centuries did is actually working against the very reason Jesus came to the earth. We, we confess our sins because they are a big deal and we confess our sins to God through Jesus because Jesus has come with the good news that he will take them away. I mean, this is like woven right into the core of the gospel. We want those sins removed from our record. We want them removed from our conscience and we're not burdened down with guilt. We want them removed from our lives in terms of the, the power of influence that sin has. First John 3.8 gives another reason. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is the first time in this letter that John has actually used this title for Jesus, Son of God, pointing to his exalted nature and his power as God the Son, who alone is capable of taking on a powerful angelic being like the devil and conquering him. Think about all the kings that have ever ruled. Think about all the people that have ever tried. There, there is nobody who's been a match for Satan. He's a liar. He's a murderer, a death dealer. And to this day, every funeral declares the impact of his terrible work. He's pictured in Revelation as a bloodthirsty dragon. Well, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That is to loose them. It's actually the very first verb that we learn in Greek class. You know, luo, etc. I started to go through the declension, but it's been too long ago. 
to loose or to, to dissolve. So think of it as, as Satan has this whole system, this whole strategic war on, on man. He, he enters the garden. He hates God. He hates humans. He, he lies. He tempts Eve to dishonor God, and, and he seeks to destroy humanity. Well, Jesus unraveled his whole campaign. Jesus caused it to fall apart. Jesus made it to be undone. He rendered the devil's work inoperable. He deprived the devil's work of its force. He broke Satan's tyranny over us. Only Jesus can do that. This was the whole objective of his coming to earth, and he succeeded. No one who belongs to Jesus as a child of God would want to turn power back over to the devil, his arch enemy. Jesus has freed the children of God from Satan's power over them. It's not that we no longer battle sin, but it means that Satan no longer has the right to rule. We saw this in, in our study in Romans. I mean, once you've been free, you don't want to be a slave again. This is why you've got a war in Ukraine, right? Formerly under USSR, they don't want to do that again. Been there, done that. No, thank you. So they're fighting to the death to keep it from happening again. Well, we understand that. If you've once been a slave of sin and Jesus has freed you, you don't willingly go back into bondage. This is not something that you want. So let me encourage you to take your ideas of how you should live your life from the character and work of Jesus, your Savior and Lord. If you put faith in Him, if you're trusting in Him to rescue you, He revealed the Father's holy nat nature. He revealed that the Father's righteous purposes. If you're truly born again, your heart resonates with God's character and Christ's mission. You have no desire to work at cross-purposes to your Savior King. So what does this mean in our, in our daily life? It, it means in, in our battle against sin, we want to remember the personal attack that sin is against Jesus. It's not just failure. It's also rebellion. It's also an attack. It's, it's, it's belittling, as it were, the work that he's done. So, I want to be thinking on him. I want love for him to inspire courage and, and strength. Um, if we don't care about Jesus, if we don't care about what he's done, then we need to check our birth certificate. We need to check whether we've actually been born again. If I don't even care about that, if it's no big deal, okay? If I've been rescued by Jesus and, and what he's done, I want to I connect everything to him. I want to live this day in a way that 
honors him in a, in a way that displays his power at work in me. It matters to me to live that way. And it, this is going to be a growth process. I mean, it started with the change of disposition of heart, a change of who I am, but it starts to filter out into other things that I do. This is what, by the way, keeps those, those sins that would take over your life, keeps them at bay. It, it helps you fight the battle so that they no longer have power over you. Now, one day the battle will be done, but right now we're in the middle of the war. And, and this is the character of God. So this naturally, you're, you're going to see this reflected, this character and work of God reflected in the portrait of the children of God. So look at 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one can stay close to Jesus and keep on sinning. By the way, I, I found this one of the, the best ways of fighting sin is to say, hey, if I you know, there are sins that I commit, and I don't realize that I'm doing it, and somebody comes up to me later, and, and they say, hey, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Why, why did you ignore that? that? That's one thing, but then there are also sins where I'm tempted, where, where I know full well what I'm doing, okay? Well, I want to keep remembering that, look, I, I value being close to Jesus more than I value whatever I think I might gain from this sin. He matters more to me. And, and I'm sure you've had this experience. When, when you let yourself sin, like you, you're, you're feeling anger and you, and you let it rip out against another person, you know you shouldn't do it. Or w- when you follow through with, with lust or some other kind of thing and, and you do something you know is not what... The, Remember that chill that comes over your heart toward God? I mean, it's almost like you have to, oh, I can't think about Jesus right now. Because if, if I would think about my relationship to him, if I would think about I'm a servant of God, I'm a child of God, then, then I would actually find greater power to fight this temptation. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. First John I mean, John 15, Jesus taught his disciples that if they would abide in him, if they would remain in him, stay in him, they would bear much fruit. So the lack of godly fruit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit, the good fruit reveals that a a person is not vitally connected to Jesus. He's not abiding in him. there's, There's got This is not works righteousness. This is, remember, God... By grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. But he, we are God's workmanship, God's masterpiece, created unto good works. This is the outflow of having been reconciled to God. So 1 John 3, 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Some of the false teachers at this time when John is writing, gained a following because they had been among those who physically saw Jesus. They saw Him with their own eyes, and thus they claimed to know Him. But their lifestyle and what they were teaching marked them as those who perhaps had looked on Jesus, but they had not really seen Him in terms of perceiving and understanding who He is. Their wicked lifestyle exposed their vaunted claim to knowing Him as to be a lie. So 1 John 3, 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteousness, 
is righteous as he is righteous. What a person is becomes apparent by what he actually does. We have a saying, what? Actions speak louder than words. We, we understand this. And Proverbs says even a child is known by his doings. In 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. It's, it's growing in him. It's taking over his life. 1 John 3, 9 goes on to say he cannot, he's not able to keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What does that mean? Like, I'm still capable of sinning, right? But I can't keep on sinning. It bugs me too much. It, it, it doesn't feel right to me. It's, I'm a different person now in Christ. And so I can't just do this, and it's, it's no big deal to me. This, this is a mark of my actually having God's life in me. 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident, it's manifest, it appears. Same word he used of Jesus appearing, who are the children of God. And he's going to describe them further. So if, if we summed up all the different angles, facets of what John is saying here, the, the children of God, this portrait, they, they are those who abide in him. They have seen him and known him. They actually have perceived who Jesus is, and they know him. They practice righteousness. You can, this isn't just, this isn't just a, a, a legal fiction. It's not just a story. It, they've been reconciled to God, and, and now their life is starting to take on godly characteristics. They, they practice righteousness. This is, this is their pattern. They're born of God. The seed is in them. They are children of God. And we're going to see that that's going to show itself in righteousness and in love. So the question is, when I look at this, do these descriptions fit me? In what ways do people who know you see what God is actually like by watching your life patterns. You know, we, we talk about our mission here is to proclaim and to display the gospel. And you really have to have both to be credible. If my words say one thing, and my actions say something else, people will believe my actions. The, the actions need to back the words. It's not perfection we're talking about because nobody should be claiming perfection. It's obvious that we haven't reached perfection, but it should also be obvious that our disposition of heart is toward righteousness and against sinning, and our pattern of life is that way too. Okay? You've heard of nominal Christians. What does that mean? In name only. We, we don't want to be just nominal Christians. We, we want people to be exposed to the actual power of God, and, and the best way for them to see the gospel, how it works, and see its power, is to see how it is changing us. This is what, what gives credibility. This is actually what even gives assurance to us that, that we actually abide in him. What about the portrait of the children of the devil? Well, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
I mean, from, from the very start, from the opening chapters, chapter 3 of Genesis, what is the devil doing? He is, he is working in order to get people to sin. This is his work. This is his mission. He's for sinning, not against it. So, 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, reminding us, you know, this is not just failing to live up to what God created me to be, it's rebelling against God's law as the king of the universe, like the devil rebels. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. What does that mean? Well, it means that such a person bears the genetic characteristics of the chief adversary of God. Satan disguised himself as a serpent, but he revealed from the beginning his anti-God spirit, deceiving and tempting Eve to disobey God in order to have what Satan alleged would be more fulfilling than obeying him. Making a practice of sinning reveals a heart that believes that my happiness is found in disobeying God rather than in obeying Him. Because, look, people do what they think will make them happy. This is Satan's lie. And I don't want to be thinking the lie. It can be found even among the most religious of people with their stacks of creeds, with their list of ceremonies and their books of knowledge. And I know this because listen to the words of Christ, the Son of God, to some of the most religious people of his day in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts, convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And that's, that's hearing, uh, being attentive to the reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 1 John 3.10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, doing right is the normal lifestyle of someone with God's life in him. It doesn't mean he never does wrong, but this is the normal pattern. When one's lifestyle is not characterized by righteous action, he reveals that he does not have God's life in him. How could he have God's life in him? Because God does what's right. So if God is at work in him, he's at work in him to do what's right. 1 John 3.10, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Love fulfills the demands of the law. Everything we should not do shows a lack of love for God or a lack of love for our neighbor. Everything we should do is how true love expresses itself. So a person who does not practice righteousness is a person who lacks love, else he or she would do right. Love leads our heart to do right. 
toward our fellow human beings. And evil is by nature unloving. This all fits together. I mean, think of it this way. Sin, we, we've learned that sin is not just wrong, it's also harmful. So when I sin, I harm people. Love doesn't want to harm people. Love wants to help people. If, if you're a believer, if you belong to Jesus, you are on the planet to help people, to, to find need, urgent need, and to meet it, to to love people the way Jesus loved people. And with this statement, John's going to transition to how love marks those who are of God and how hatred marks those who are of the evil one. This morning, if you believe yourself to be a child of God, through Jesus, in what ways... Can you show love to those around you? I mean, I would encourage you. I mean, every morning, first thing you wake up, to ask yourself that question. If you belong to Jesus, like, and, and you've been born again, is God, how, how can I show love to people today? How can I do good to them? I, I want to show love to them in my attitude and when my attitude is wrong about them, I want to repent of that. I want to confess that. I, I want to show love to them in my words, and my words about people are wrong. I want to repent of that. I want to show love to them in my deeds. So it's just not talk, that I that actually follow through. It actually costs me something. This is the way God's people live. This is the way God's children live. This, people who have God's life in them live this way, and people who don't, don't. Not that they never do anything right, but this is not the general disposition. So I, I go, when I'm born again, I go from being a, a self-centered person that thinks that somehow I'll get ahead by disobeying God to a person who is Christ-centered and, and others-focused, where I'm seeking to show love to God and, and love to others. So let me sum up this way. What, what do you know God is like? When you think about God, the God that you learn from the Scriptures, the God that is the true God, what do you know about Him? And, and related to that, because Jesus made the Father known to us, what was Jesus like? Do your life patterns reflect God's character and work? Or do they reflect the character and work of the devil? I, I've seen, okay, I've, I've been in Christian culture environment pretty much since I was born. I've seen both patterns among very religious people even people who make their living in full-time Christian work. I've seen both patterns. I've seen evidence of children of God and children of the devil. And it's rubber meets the road kind of lifestyle like John is talking about. Family patterns reveal reality. 
So this morning, I, I would like us to just take a moment before we go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to move on into um, our communion together, um, celebrating the Lord's table. But I, I'd like you to really be honest with yourself about where you are. I'm not talking about being hard on yourself and beating up on yourself. I am talking about being honest. And it, it may be that you, you are a genuine child of God, and you can see it in the patterns, but maybe you've gotten a little bit flippant about some sins you're letting in your life, like they don't matter. And, and let me encourage you to deal with them the way Jesus dealt with them. Why would you not take care of them when Jesus has made a way? And then certainly in a, in a group like this, there are those, you, you've got kind of a Christian flavor, but it's never gotten down to the core of who you are. Your identity has not changed yet. You, you have not put your faith in Jesus and had him cleanse your heart from sin and reconcile you to God and give you his spirit so that you start to change from the inside out. You know, that life could be yours. It's a question of whether by the Spirit of God your heart wants that and whether you believe Jesus will do that for you. And I invite you this day to finally quit playing games and put your life, give your life to Jesus. Let God save you and give you the miraculous kind of power that will change you from the inside out. I want to give you a chance to do that. Just let's take a moment of silence here where you talk to the Lord about your, your state of your soul, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Dear God, I think of the hymn writer's words of prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You are the God we love. And Lord, it is a battle with our flesh. It is a battle with the world and with Satan. But God, we thank you that because of Jesus, this is a winnable war that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in us so we can fight this battle and so that we even want to fight this battle every day till we finally reach glory and the battle is done. So God, I pray for your children here today that you, you would help each of us keep our lives clean through coming to you in confession, through, through, through the power of the Spirit at work in our lives. Lord, help us not think of sin as a light thing just because we couldn't afford to remove it from our lives and Jesus had to do it for us. Rather, Lord, help our hearts to so love you and because of you to so love others that, that we want to do right. And when we do wrong, it grieves us. And we, 
We want to make that right. And Father, I pray for those individuals here today who've, who've never tasted the Lord's power in their life. They, they've never had the cleansing. They've never known what it's like not to have guilt over their sin. They've never known what it's like to have the Spirit of God at work in them, changing them, to know they're a child of God. Oh, Father, I pray you would draw those individuals to you today, that you would make them yours, and they would rejoice in their new family, no longer a child of darkness, but a child of light. And God, even as we go now into our time of celebrating the Lord's table, we pray that that if there's anything between us and you, and if there's anything between us and someone else in the body, that we might confess that before you so that this is not a charade, but actually is a, a declaration of reality of what's actually happened in our lives. For it's in Christ's name.